0: Mr. Kieran O'Byrne, how are you doing, my man? (laughs) Hey, buddy. I'm all good. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. A huge thank you for coming on to the podcast today. Absolute pleasure to have you on. Pleasure's all mine, trust me. (laughs) So I wanted to to get you on for quite a long time, um, but I've always been thinking, like, what is the perfect topic to discuss for the Endurance King? Um, And I think we've got a pretty juicy one to get into today. Um, based on your previous couple of weeks. So before we get into that, could I obviously know who you are, uh, but for the listeners who may not, um, can you just give a brief uh, background into yourself?
1: Yeah, no problem at all. So my name is Kieran O'Byrne, aka The Strength Catalyst. And what it is that I do is quite simply, I motivate and coach former athletes back into shape. And one thing that they don't realize is, yeah, I'll transition them back into good shape. But also after a couple of weeks or months, I uh, just kind of rekindle their ambition for challenging training sessions and really just kind of push them back into the competitive scene. So that basically is me in a nutshell. I do online coaching for former athletes to get them back into shape physically and mentally motivate the living shit out of them to get competitive again.
0: No, that is absolutely awesome. And yourself, you are an ultra endurance athlete, correct me if I'm wrong.
1: That is correct. Um, the, on the day of this um, podcast recording, I'm actually still recovering from severe doms after a 52-kilometer mountain run over 4,000 meters of elevation. So um, yeah, that's something I do on the regular and um, I'm yet to complete a full distance Ironman because it was cancelled due to the pandemic, but I have a, a lot of endurance events under my belt between trail running, adventure racing and triathlon.
0: Fantastic. So would you say like your area of expertise is going into like the endurance, ultra endurance uh, kind of realm?
1: Yeah. So just like I said, uh, one of the key principles that I do or that I work with uh, in a lot of cases with a lot of my clients is just initially getting them back into shape, but then they become that little bit competitive. And I say, right, let's start to look at the endurance world. So a lot of people coming from rugby, soccer, football, hurling, whatever their sport may be, we need to get competitive with something. So I'm doing it. It worked really well for me. And it's doing the exact same thing for a lot of my clients, as we will do a little bit of a deep dive into one of them just now.
0: <laughs> yeah, very cool. So it's almost like you've got them up and running, and they've like almost been enabled to do extra work. And they kind of think, like, right, what can I do? What's the next challenge? And it's kind of snowballed into that yeah. kind of uh, way of thinking, like, what event's next? What's the next? What's more? What's more? What's the progression? What's the development there?
1: Exactly, um, because one of the biggest things that is often overlooked is like when we are brought up and raised, we we become really really competitive with sport, and then all of a sudden, poof, it's gone. So it's either college, uh, drinking, um, work life, career acceleration. Like we actually lose a part of our identity. So look, I'm not going to go into too much of like the logistics or the the psychology behind it. but... We'll keep the main thing the main thing today.
0: <laughs> yeah, for sure. we got a lot to get through. So this is a really nice um, episode to follow on from last week. So last week, we looked at five key principles for the ultra and endurance athlete. And what I want to talk to you about today is your client, Aaron, who just done a 100 mile running race. And what I'd love to get into is kind of like all the lessons you learned from it, like your plan of action, what went well, what didn't go well. Um, purely from a selfish perspective because I just want to know what you did because I'm yet to uh, work with an, an ultra-endurance athlete who's done a 100-mile race. I've done, yeah. you know, um, sort of venture races like yourself um, or exactly yourself, um, Ironmans and so on. So I haven't experienced uh, anyone who's all worked with anyone who's done uh, an event at this kind of magnitude, but you have and I would love to know everything about it so so yeah let's get let's get into today let's go i'm really excited to share some of the stuff so (laughs) awesome so we're going to break this into kind of two areas so the preparation i everything we did leading up to the event itself and then the event so when we think of like um a needs analysis then so planning like a trainer block so aaron came to you or should we just say any individual come to you Uh, came to you but we use Iron for example and it's like right kieran i want to run 100 miles go what do i do what what are the key considerations essentially (laughs) right
1: so the first thing was i knew the background that he was coming from so we had a call and quite simply i said right what's going on where are you right now mentally as well as physically and he said look i used to be a rugby player these past couple of months i haven't been playing rugby and i kind of don't really know myself i said right so you want to get competitive again yes so he said, look, I want to do an ultramarathon. First thing I said was, I will believe you when I get a screenshot of your registration. So immediately I challenged him. I said, sign up for it and then I'll believe you and then I'll coach you. So then we went from there. And this is basically just in any coaching scenario, we need to work on developing the relationship first. So where do we stand? Can I push you? Can I not? Do I need to take a big brother approach in the sense of putting an arm around you and kind of guiding you away from these pitfalls and traps or do i need to throw you into the deep end and say learn to swim so that's the initial thing that i would say so like when you're asking like with regards to the needs analysis that's the first thing where do we stand with our relationship because a hundred mile run is not getting ready to go and do a couch to 5k and i think it's a really really big thing so again in aaron's case he's extremely competitive if you say i'm going to work harder than you he will just take it to a whole new level So that was the first thing I needed to challenge him mentally as well as emotionally and say, right, how far can I push you? And then it was a case of, right, do we need to lose weight? What is your current level of experience? Uh, What are your heart rate zones? What's your mental strength and capacity uh, based off your level of experience in the sport? What high standard did you reach? How grueling have your training sessions been? Um, but then we kind of start to go into more of the specifics, obviously, after we get the, the very big, big foundation. So your running times, your heart rate zones, what's your maximal recoverable volume? Like, and those are the three big, big things that we needed to find out immediately. So before we could even get to that, we need to see how well he could respond like physically just to a challenge. And this is a really, really challenging thing. Again, coming from a really competitive background, I needed to just lay out the foundations to say, look, dude. I need you to be 10 out of 10 honest with me because if you're not, we're going to fail. And this is where a big problem can be with some really competitive people is you say, run 10K and let me know how you felt after it. You might go specifics and say, right, ignore heart rates, go RPE 7 out of 10 so you shouldn't really be able to talk. Yeah, it was actually grand. It felt really easy. Then I get the heart rate data back. I'm like, you were red zoning for the whole thing. That's not what you're supposed to do. So that's the first thing before anything. You need open-ended honesty. So then we needed to find out what are your heart rate zones. And from that, I need you to just have one effort of go absolutely flat to the mat. So we got a 5K time. And then a few weeks later, we get 10K half marathons and full marathon times as well. From there, it is always going to be incremental. And this is one of the principles that is always overlooked. People just try and say, oh, you want to run 100 miles? I'm going to throw 50 miles at you tomorrow we need to incrementally see what his ability to recover was. So that being said, we need to get base measures, first four to six weeks, 5K times, 10K times, um, 20, 21.1, 25, 30K, and full distance marathon times. So all of those things being considered, we're essentially looking at the biopsychosocial aspect. So what's going on in his head, what is actually going on with his heart and physically what's going on with his body. So again, this is where a good, honest coaching relationship is highly important. But what are the needs analysis? I just listed those there. So the maximal recoverable volume, uh, his heart rate zones, and his running times for the set um, distances. Those are the main things um, that we could start with.
0: Oh, that, that, that's super cool! Like that's loads of information there. Um, <laughs> what I actually love is the first point in terms of just building that relationship because you know you're gonna have to work very closely together like the 100 mile race itself is going to be quite i guess you call it quite intimate it's like you are going to be working very close and you know you need that trust they need that relationship um so i actually love that you've spent well while sort of developing that and just seeing how far you can actually push them because um, yeah. that's sometimes a little bit of question back in your minds like how much they have in a tank either be honest with me all that kind of stuff so that's, yeah. that's awesome. Um, one of the questions I do have with MRV, so maximal recoverable volume, how did you work that out? Is there a case of do this session you hold up? Let's pull it back. How do you kind of go about that? So one of the big things
1: that we were looking at was obviously his body weight. And when Aaron started, uh, he was sitting at 101 kilograms. And when we started the race on the race day, he was 87. Okay. So immediately it was like, right, we need to get you running because I want him to start seeing progress. Immediately it was just start running immediately. And then from there, we started to implement a little bit of speed drills. And then once we got the speed drills in, he started to get a little bit more robust and faster. And then we started to bring down his body weight as we went on. So when you're asking like, what is the story with his MRV? How do we actually monitor that? That was a case of me microdosing him as much and as often and as frequent as possible. So it was a case of, right, I want you to do intervals. And let's say we were doing intervals of one kilometer, absolutely flat to the mat, and one kilometer recovery. Then it was just contrasting and comparing as the weeks went on, how much faster were you getting with the intervals? But also, as we were monitoring the intervals, so the speed work, we also needed to take into account that we're getting ready for a really long event. So the anaerobic stuff, I just want to hit him hard and see how he was going to respond because everybody loves running, running hard and fast. And the other side then was we need to build the aerobic capacity. So again, this is just quite simply going straight back to that open honest relationship. And the heart rate data as well was really valuable for me. So I was able to see based off that if he was just quite simply spiking when he should not have been. So if his heart rate was supposed to be in zone two, zone three, and then all of a sudden he was in zone five for six kilometers, I say, look, dude, this is not what we're supposed to be doing. This is the sole objective right now, and we need to make sure that you can tolerate it. So how exactly do we do it? Yes, I have a degree in sports science, but I did not specifically take the sports science route with that. I was just going back to the relationship, checking in with him two or three times a week. How are you getting on? How's the body feeling? Okay, you may be a little bit stiff after the session from yesterday, but I do want you to go for an active recovery jog of 10K. So in hindsight, yes, it's active recovery, but we're also making sure just to accumulate more mileage. So there's a couple of things that you kind of can't tell him. And I know he's going to, for a fact, he's going to be listening back to this and going, you fucker. <laughs> you never told me this. So How exactly did we monitor his uh, maximum re- recoverable volume? Quite simply, it was a relationship. And that was the biggest thing. How are you really feeling? How's your energy How are you feeling since you woke up? Are you on top of hydration? What color is your urine uh, today? You know, have you gone to the toilet regularly? Is your routine out of sync? So there's actually a lot of things that you can use to measure the MRV. And I think that kind of answered your question.
0: Cool. So I guess it's like a lot of the subjective side of it in terms of like wellness and everything. And then perhaps could you look up the heart rate data or heart rate variability, all that kind of stuff and see how it's recovering on a daily basis perhaps as well? Yeah, that was one thing I, I'll be perfectly honest with
1: you And some scientists might listen to this And say, what an idiot I actually completely avoided HRV Because with that It was just going to cause confusion Between the two of us And that is not what he needs as an athlete He just needs to be told, do this And that was strictly what he said to me at the start You have full trust from me I'll do as you tell me So there was no point for me To try and give him a university standard lecture On HRV Because he's just going to say Kieran, I don't care, I'm feeling good I'm going to run Cool, so again, you know, kind of like, between a rock and a hard
0: place, yeah, 100%. <laughs> like a couple of years ago, I went like all um kind of HRV for like uh, it's like 14 days where it, it didn't last long. And um, you know, you wake up in the morning, stick your heart rate strap on like the chest strap, measure your heart HRV, and it's like this is such a like such a pain in the past. And like, my app was telling me whether I got the right app or what I have to do, um, it's telling me the difference to what I was actually feeling. I was like, I wake up and feel absolutely great. And then my app would say like, oh, Chris, you're overreaching. Like, you should probably have a chill day. I'm like, oh, I feel great. And then yes. the other is when it's like, if wake up, you feel shit. And it's like, Chris, you feel outstanding today. You <laughs> smash it. And it just complete head fuck. And it's like, you know what? This is just not worth it. So yeah. yeah. Sometimes, that was, sometimes too much data is a bad thing, I think.
1: Exactly. And just like you said, you know, you tried that for two weeks. I've done the exact same thing and I've turned clients off. Because the last thing you want to do is overwhelm them with too much information. They just want to be told what to do, how to do it. And I have my full trust in you as a coach. So tell me what to do.
0: Yeah, 100%. So, you know when um, you saw sort of, uh, working off like RPE systems and stuff. Yeah. And you say you're matching up and mining it up with the heart rate data. So... He's like, oh, yeah, it's like a seven RP, but you're acting like zone five. Is yeah. there a little bit of educational behind that? Or yes. is that a case of ego just like, nah I'm just going to crack on?
1: No, um, we need to get a bit of education with it. But at the end of the day, he's a client. He's signed up for me to get him across the line. So I need to say, right, what is the fastest route to get you from A to B, but also give you that little bit extra? just to kind of complement my knowledge as well as a coach, because I think that's fair to say that all coaches love doing that. It's not just saying, hey, just do this and hope for the best, but they want to give education behind it as well. And Aaron is very intelligent himself as well. So when we were talking about RPE, that was just kind of at the start. If I say, right, seven out of 10, I want you to run at that. You shouldn't be able to get more than five words. So that was also kind of me trying to find out how well is he going to respond to it. So if he's running at his self-perception of seven out of 10 effort, He's also going to send me back the heart rate data and I can actually match that up based off of his max efforts. So our own perception, I've had this issue myself numerous times, is just like you said, you might be running and you might be feeling absolutely fantastic, but all of a sudden you're red, zone, you're red zoning and your watch is telling you, right, you're going to have a heart attack here soon. You're like, oh, okay, I need to kind of you know, just tighten that relationship with the perception of it and the actual. So with the heart rate strap. I bought him one of these after a couple of weeks and I sent it to him. You know, it was just a case of, right, we're getting serious about this. So I need to monitor that a little bit closer. So we need to work out the five zones, Um, basically zone one to five. Zone two, we put a lot of emphasis on that after the first initial stage. And why we did that is quite simply any endurance freak is going to know that zone two is the biggest aerobic base that we can work with. So the bigger our aerobic base, then the longer we can work in that level of, effort essentially effortlessly right so we want to be able to do as much as we possibly can while exerting as little as possible so the more aerobic we stay the easier things are going to be for us so if we want to get more miles in the bank while staying in zone two he's going to benefit so much more six, seven, eight months down the line to which he has so that's a little bit of a kind of a roundabout answer, but I think I kind of got it there.
0: No, that, that was awesome. That was cool. So, alongside all like the aerobic stuff, so developing zone two, all that kind of stuff, um, did you throw any sort of like weight training in there? Or was yeah. it a case of like, dude, you're, you know, your next rugby player, you're strong enough, you don't need to do weight training, let's put our priority on the running side of things? Or was it like a little bit of weight training there just for like injury, um, rehabilitation, robustness, that kind of stuff?
1: Yes, absolutely. So we need to kind of look at things with a double-edged sword. So the first thing is it's coming out a lot in the past couple of years is that endurance athletes can get stronger, produce more force, more frequently, more effortlessly by training lower reps. So anything uh, between 5 and 10 reps at a pretty high weight is going to have a massive impact as runners. Also, what people will possibly argue with me on this is that endurance sports – it's just a game of strength. Who can exert the most amount of force most often as well as absorbing the same amount of force more so than the other guy without cracking? And I know that might sound a little bit kind of stupid, but like that is all it is. We, quite simply, as endurance athletes, we want to be able to produce and absorb as much force as humanly possible effortlessly. So that being said, do we need to get him strong? Absolutely, through the roof. We need to make sure that his posture is going to be upright, he's conditioned well, so that as fatigue starts to kick in, he's already mechanically robust to that. And on top of it as well, aesthetically, everybody wants to look good and know that they're strong. So that was one big, big thing that we had at the start. So when we started, it was three months in, then that's when uh, the pandemic officially hit and lockdown happened. So it was a case of, right, we now need to shift from the big heavy weights in the gym we need to just make sure that you can comfortably secure your body weight, rep in, rep out. So we just went really, really high volume. And there was obviously a bit of plyometrics and stuff in there as well to try and, again, making that bit more robust and just to prehab and bulletproof everything. Because I think it's fair to say that anybody's going to understand that an Achilles or a patellar tendon uh, pain of some sort is going to creep up on endurance athletes a lot. Lower back pain, I actually have a list of all the things of, that we went through Mm-hmm. Um, so like what were the biggest challenges that he had this Is like his calf and his Achilles pain we needed to prehab that so what we did was a lot of like baby plyos uh, in that sense with his lower back uh, issues we needed to make sure that we were going to release his hip flexors a lot more and increase core strength and motivation is obviously going to take a big dip there as well every now and again so did we make him strong? absolutely but there was 80% of the emphasis on running and the 20% was on really hard like borderline cruel conditioning.
0: So, cruel yeah. conditioning. So, <laughs> so how long did you have um, to prepare for this race? <laughs> this is really Three impressive.
1: Months. Um, eight months. So we eight had months, from right. January, January, February, and then it was like one, if not maybe two weeks into March, and then lockdown happened. So we couldn't get access to the gym. And it was like, oh, what do we do now? So we had minimal equipment at home but we still need to start getting miles up because we had the foundation already built. Now let's build and decorate the house. So you got to make do with what you have. And that's where a good coach is going to be separated from not so good.
0: Yeah, 100%, completely agree with that. So you mentioned like some of the challenges there in terms of um, sort of like tendon issues, muscle issues, stuff like that. Did you have any like major sort of setbacks where you just thought like, for fuck's sake, what's happened to you? And if so, what was it? How did you overcome it? Um, so we actually had a couple, but
1: and this is the best thing again about having that open, honest relationship with your clients is that he's going to tell me, look, it's sore, but it's not agonizing. And uh, there was a couple of things that crept up along the way and it was always a kind of a case of, fuck's sake, why did, why is this happening now kind of thing? We had calf strains, we had lower back issues, we had pains, and um, we had a lot of hip flexor tightness, but it was a case of like, nothing is ever going to be perfect. We're never ever going to be 100% in physically and mentally and emotionally the best state ever. So it's kind of a case of just fucking pull up your big boy socks and drive on. So that was always the attitude and the focus. But to be very realistic and respectful, it was always a case of, right, we need to be smart with this. So with the calf strain, it was right. What can we do to prevent this from worsening? Uh, We needed to make sure that we were going to increase uh, the mobility and stability within the foot and the ankle joints. So all of that. So it was quite simply implementing grounding. So grounding is something that a lot of people will overlook. But quite simply, it's you take off your shoes and your socks and you walk around outside on the concrete or on the grass. And from a recovery standpoint, what's going to happen is all the negatively charged ions in your body, they're going to be exerted through your feet. And they're going to go into the earth and the floor and or the concrete as well so that was one thing that we use a lot the second thing as well with that was it's also going to increase the amount of mobility and stability between the foot and the ankle joint again which is going to subtly start to lengthen the achilles tendon and ease off the calf strain as well that we had in the higher aspect of the soleus and the lower gastrocnemius The other side of that as well, I needed to just make sure to say to him, as you were working from home, can you just walk around in your socks or in your bare feet that little bit more? So on top of that, then again, we needed to make sure to keep the amount of force producibility up. So it was pogo jumps. So if anybody's ever listening to this and they're a little bit unsure what the hell is a pogo jump, just stand on one foot and bounce up and down off the floor until you start to feel that the upper aspect of your calf is sore. From there, we're trying to increase the amount of stiffness within the calf. So again, between the soleus and gastrocnemius, that is just quite simply going to make his Achilles tendon more robust, more tensile to produce more force with less effort. Um, so from a prehab standpoint, that was the biggest thing that we did to make sure to bulletproof those. And the other ones as well that, were, that have often been overlooked is the adductors and abductors. So the inside and the outside of the hips and the legs. So what are they going to do? It's going to prevent Tr- Trendelenburg gait, which is quite simply just having a hip hike on one side, which could possibly force an injury in the lower back. So the best thing that we did was I actually, uh, when he was sending me through his progress photos, from a biomechanical standpoint, what can we possibly become subject to? And just try to bulletproof it as best as possible while also making it somewhat enjoyable. Again, we had minimal equipment. And it was a case of, right, what can we do to make it interesting, but also complement your performance. There was a fair bit of eccentric exercises put in as well. We had hamstring strains. But again, it's just a case of let's confront it. Let's be honest. How sore is it? What can we do? What are the scientific principles that we have? And how do we make it work? So again, at the base of all this, and I know that was a big, like, um, roundabouty answer, but it's just that open, honest relationship, that full transparency of, right, how are you really feeling? tell me because if you tell me that it's not that sore and it's actually an eight out of 10 sore, I'm going to tell you to sprint because you told me that it's okay. And now all of a sudden we're back five steps. So yeah.
0: No, that, that, that was very detailed. That, that was really, really cool. <laughs> I thought so too. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So, um, so obviously the, the physical is a massive part of it. And you no, know, you can have like the best, like world laid out plan in the world, but you know, something's always going to happen. And I think the role of good coaches and great coaches is to be adaptable um, and just be problem solvers. Just like, right, this has been presented with me. Right, what do we do next? Uh, what is the outcome? How do you overcome this roadblock, this barrier, this hurdle, and so on? So talk about the physical, the mental side of things. So I, basically, Kieran, what the fuck is a hurt locker? How do to get into it. I, I want to know. Um, <laughs> I, get, I get hurt all the time. It's like, I was in a hurt locker today. It's like this is great. What is this? How did you get into it? Why is this um, so great? It?
1: Um, I I'll openly share like my story, I suppose, very briefly. Like yep, a perfect. couple of years ago, a couple of years ago, I was anxiety ridden, like through the roof. I was terrified to do anything, quite simply, for fear of X, Y, or Z, making up all these own scenarios inside my head. So then, as a result, you get paralysis by analysis, and you don't do anything. So think of that kind of pain, and just multiply it by a hundred except you're only directing the pain back at you because you have nobody else but to blame but yourself while you're in this stupid event. You're suffering. You feel like an absolute moron for signing up for something so stupid. And at the end of it, you paid entry to suffer to a whole new level. So when people ask, like, what is the Hurt Locker? Personally, if I were to try and experience or to try and explain it from my experience, it is the most humble and honest position you can ever, ever get with yourself because you have nobody else to rely on but yourself. And there's a a really, really cool um, um, paradox that I came across a couple of weeks ago in Ross Edgeley's book. It's called uh, The Stockdale Paradox. I would tell anybody listening to this, make sure you pause this episode right now and go to Google. And it's going to tell you quite simply, um, you cannot ever rely on anybody else for your current level of suffering. So what is the hurt locker? It is the darkest, most honest, most humble place you're ever ever going to be in your life via exercise. Um, so yeah, that
0: uh, is I, I, what the I hurt locker. Think, is. I got a good idea of that. That's cool. Yeah, nice <laughs> really like explaining it, like the humbling side of it, and mm. you know, you signed up for this is on you, and it's just a reflection of yeah. what you signed up for. So that's that's cool. I like that. So uh, in terms of. Um, yeah, We'll come back to that more so in the, in the race, but in terms of like um, the saying of like we never trial new strategies in competition first, we yes. always trial them in training that replicates the uh, demands and scenarios of the events or the race or the game, and so on. Is there anything you had to trial in particular leading up to it? So you kind of put in all the hard work, uh, you build up this like huge aerobic base, made them like uh, robust and Bulletproof, then it's just like the fine-tuning stuff now of the yeah. event um, sort of plan of action. Is there anything you trialed in particular? Uh, if so, uh, I would love to know. Uh,
1: there was a lot of things, actually, a lot of uh, things. And again, I give massive uh, kudos and credit to you for teaching me this through your course over the past couple of months. Uh, but the first thing is we needed to break down all his goals. We needed to break the goals down from 100 miles and stop looking at them from 100 miles and bring them down closer, smaller, more digestible, more appealing, essentially. So just like I said at the very start, you need to go from 5K, 10K, 20K, 30K to be able to recover from all of those. So once we got to that point, it was a case of, right, Aaron, I want you to run 60 kilometers in one day. And he would immediately think, oh, what in the – because that, that is a freak number for any normal person. Nobody just decides on a Saturday they're going to go run 60K. Nobody in the right mind does anyway. All right, So what we needed to do was we needed to break down all of those um, The strategies, essentially, came from breaking down that 100 mile into smaller events. And again, we need to make sure that we could microdose him, he could recover from them, and we could also implement the nutrition strategies as we went. So just, I'll give you a very brief overview. What we did was we made him run 60K. After a couple of weeks then, we made him run 100K. And then it was getting a little bit closer to the deadline. So we needed to make him run 120K over three days just to see how well he was going to recover in between. And then it was 160K in one week, which 160K is 100 miles. So from there, I will make sure that everybody understands that the methods may vary. However, the scientific principles are always going to stay the same. So where are we with regards to the nutrition strategies side of things? To date, I think it's fair to say that science is only going to state that 90 grams of carbohydrates is the most that we can consume within one hour and quite simply not shit ourselves. That is essentially the safest dose. Uh, But from there, how hard are we going to be working? So we needed to vary or we needed to measure how much his stomach was going to expand, how much can he actually physically get down and not shit himself. And the other side of it as well, what is his sweat rate? And how is he feeling on top of hydration? So do we need to bring in electrolytes? Uh, do we need to bring in some extra carbohydrate fuel source? So the typical likes of the tailwind, Rice Krispie squares, uh, the bananas, the uh, white bread with peanut butter and bananas then inside in those, they were all trialed because quite simply, we needed to see how his gut was going to respond. It's all well and good to tell somebody just drink Lucozade. But when you're running for a stupidly long, distance you need to make sure that your stomach is going to become just as robust as a steel pole so that being said what did we trial i said right once we're running more than 20k we need to make sure to fuel as we go so again that was the rice Krispy squares 27 grams of carbohydrates i believe um per bar from that one of those every 20 to 30 minutes depending on your level of hunger make sure to stay on top of hydration which is somewhere between 500 and a thousand milliliters per hour depending on the sweat rate and depending on the humidity and the temperature of the you know, the weather that day. What did we implement with regards to strategies? Everything, absolutely everything. The day before, were we carb loading? Yes, we were able to push up to eight grams of carbohydrates per kilogram of body weight because anything more than that, it's just quite simply going to be too much stress on his stomach. And he wasn't able to do that. We actually had some gastrointestinal issues, shall we say, um. use your imagination as to what i'm trying to get at there when we loaded them with nine and ten we tried that did not work at all um it's great while you're eating it but it's going to create that bottleneck effect like the next morning when you wake up and you're like oh i just ate too much so what exact strategies did work then as we came into it and we knew that they were sound to keep going the beetroot juice the nitrate loading the day before um, what we did was we just went somewhere between uh, comfort and uh, perfect dosing. So I just said, make sure you're drinking minimum of 500 mils the day before. If you actually start to enjoy it, then don't drink any more than a liter. That's the thing. Like as we drink it, it can actually become a little bit more tasteless and enjoyable. Um, the other thing is well, carb loading. And then the biggest principle as well was 90 grams of carbohydrates per hour is the maximum. However, as the event starts to go longer and longer calories are just going to be expended through the roof at a totally different rate. So then it gets to a point that, right. We just need to get calories in. So that was where we started to bring in bagels laced with peanut butter and some bananas as well. And just to throw it out there now, before we get into the specifics on the day of of the race, he got a pizza. So like, that's the thing. Yes. We can talk about just the specifics of, um, you know carbohydrates proteins fats all of these different things but we need to make sure to blend the almost like basically bend science to suit the reality and that is a really really challenging part and again that comes back to the open honest transparent relationship so what do we do all of the above <laughs> basically we trialed everything
0: this is it that, that's class like in terms of the science like all it's doing is guiding your decisions and decide and um know guiding your sort of like your framework to work from but then personal preference and different environment scenarios can massively affect all this um so yeah absolutely crucial point there to trial every strategy in training first that replicates their demands like you want to try these um trial these strategies before a lower body leg session, gym session with you. Yeah. It's like, you know, it has, to, it has to replicate for sure. One of the things that kind of jumped out at me, his ability to handle almost like upwards of like a liter of fluid per hour. That is, yeah. that is pretty sensational. Like um, yeah. I kind of go off from maybe three to 500 mil per hour for, mm. from like recommendations and perhaps experience. I never ever yeah. seen anybody can get a liter of fluid on an hourly basis whilst exercising. That's, that's pretty yeah. good
1: and not cycling because it's so much easier to drink it while you're cycling. But um, Aaron actually yeah. has, like, he sweats a fair amount. Uh, so we needed to make sure that, right, okay, you're definitely on top of hydration. But just to give you a little bit of a sneak peek, his weight actually went up um, during the first um, phase of the race. He went up by a full kilo because we got a little bit excited and it was really, really hot. So we wanted to make sure that physically his volume or the his stomach like the volume in his stomach can tolerate i say that backwards so that his stomach can tolerate the volume of food that's coming in so we just said right we're going to push it a little bit higher up to the point that right let's see how much you can really tolerate before you start to puke and then we'll work backwards from that now he doesn't notice until he listens to this but that's (laughs) kind of why we were pushing it to see what's essentially the breaking point of the stomach so Yes, it was somewhere between 5 and a 1,000 milliliters per hour. Also taking into account as well, sweat rate was through the roof because it was really, really hot. So we wanted to make sure that, right, if he's going to be sweating a lot, he needs to be physically able to consume a lot. We were kind of pushing, we were really like flirting with the boundaries. But again, that's kind of what we needed to do.
0: Yeah, 100%. I remember um, the day itself is absolutely scorching, It's absolutely boiling (laughs) and sweat rates will be very, very high Mm -hmm. uh, for sure. So... From like my experience working with like ultra endurance athletes, it is a case of you kind of got two main sort KPIs: can we get enough uh, fluid and carbohydrate in them, or so they performing under high carbohydrate availability and have enough energy available to support performance? And can they not shit themselves? Can we minimise gastrointestinal distress? If we got those two, you're pretty much onto a winner. Yeah, and it does take a huge amount of practice and trialling, uh, and a lot of communication leading up to the event. Like, we don't just get there in day one. It's like, right, here's a strategy. Here's 90 grams per hour. Let's try Luke age. Let's give it a go. Mm. Terrible sort idea. Yeah. So, no, big kudos to you for that. That's actually fantastic. Yes, so, race day rocks up. Um, let's go. What was it, 24 hours you completed it in? 24
1: hours and 14 minutes. So, his average pace was just over seven minutes per kilometer, which is fairly commendable for a first time.
0: Yeah. <laughs> when I try and get my head around that, it's like, you're going to run for a hundred miles, which is going to take you basically a day. I was like, (laughs) after we finished recording this, I got you like 6,000 steps. I'm like, fucking hell. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, I need to get that 10,000 steps a day. And um, no, so it is, uh, it's incredible. It's inspiring. It's it's absolutely awesome. So I would love to know what is um, like the, the race plan essentially.
1: Yeah. And so what we had done is I can't give the specifics quite simply because I don't want to try and give anybody else uh, his game plan. Um, But what we did was we were able to work out his aerobic capacity and match that with his heart rate. So we didn't have access to like, you know, lactate threshold or, you know, the specific sports science lab testing um, because of lockdown and all sorts of things. So what we did was quite simply, we built his aerobic base as high as we possibly could. And then as we got closer and closer, we were able to pinpoint, where fatigue was going to kick in and then where fatigue was going to kick in based off of some of the training sessions he did, where was fatigue going to kick in and are you depleted in the sense of glycogen or are you starting to dehydrate? So again, if we could stay on top of nutrition and hydration, then his heart rate is basically going to stay the same and we can work off that and link it with his pace so he knew the exact pace that he was to stick with. So what he did was on his watch, he just had his heart rate and he had his pace and he knew what to stick with. And that was it. That was the game plan. So we were able to work out where are you going to run aerobically? Are you going to hold that forever? And then it was quite simply just up to the support crew to run alongside him and say, here, drink this or eat this at this time. So there was two support crews and it was his girlfriend and his friend in one, in one car. And it was myself and one of his friends in the other car. So what was happening was I was driving a few K ahead. I was ringing them saying, right, it's X time. Make sure Aaron gets this. So Aaron was able to maintain his uh, pacing strategy the whole way throughout, check his heart rate, and how are we feeling? Right, this is the real kicker that we needed to stay on top of. Every time that he stopped, I put the weighing scales out on the floor. And when we put the weighing scales out on the floor, yes, we could basically cross-reference, where's your heart rate? Where is your current level of um, exertion, like your self-perceived level of exertion? And on top of that as well, are we on top of the food? Yes, we are. We were pushing maximum of 90 grams. Quite simply, what we found out was that he was after drinking so much water and consuming so many carbohydrates from 6 a.m. until 11 a.m., which is at the first checkpoint, which is 50 kilometers, that he felt like his stomach was just after expanding tenfold. Lo and behold, jump on the weighing scales, just as you come in, he's up one kilogram. So he had consumed six liters of water in the first five hours. And I said, hang on, there's definitely a miscalculation here and uh fiona absolute credit to her she had written down absolutely every single thing six liters of water he consumed so i said right and we need to pull it back a little bit here (laughs) okay so that was the thing like what were the biggest challenges that was definitely one of them and we needed to make sure just to capitalize on it before it could happen so nutrition um was okay we just need to keep that fuel in the tank as we're going the other one as well are we on top of heart rates, even though it was scorching hot? It was like 27 degrees in Ireland. So if anybody's listening from like Spain or Portugal, that's the equivalent to your 40, 45. Um, so again, we need to stay on top of sweat rate. It was being monitored by weight loss, um, which is going to be through glycogen depletion and dehydration. We were on top of that and his self-perceived level of exertion as well. So those are the big things we need to make sure to capitalize on them before they even crept up. Um, what else was there? So the, the palatability of the food, as well was another thing. He said to us that he hated Rice Krispie Squares after the first stop. Uh, I'm offended by that, but carry on.
0: Uh, Yeah, <laughs> as was I. <laughs> uh,
1: but one of the things that we could assume, and again, this is just completely anecdotal, so please no super scientists shoot me in the face right now. We could only assume that he was after consuming so much carbohydrates and so much water within the first couple of hours that it quite literally had expanded in his gut. That is how he described it. So that's what we're going with. Then again, he did consume six liters of water within the first five hours, the volume of that alone. And he stopped once for a wee as well. Um, so again, that's what we can only assume. So the biggest challenges are going to be the palatability, the food that he's going to enjoy. We needed to slowly start creeping in some fat sources as well as the day went on. Just again, just to keep those calories in because the sweat rate was through the roof weighing scales to measure his level of glycogen and uh, water depletion and nutrition strategies as I said they were fairly sweet because we said right this has been trialed and tested we know what works we know what doesn't so we're going to stick with it and again massive kudos and huge shout out to every single one of the support crew because the communication between us all was 100% spot on and that made Aaron's life so much easier because he just needed to be told run
0: and that comes back to the um, team building, the relationship building and trust. So that's yes. cool. What I loved about that is, you know, you kind of use the science, you've got the recommendations here, like this is the game plan, let's crack on with it. But then you're just monitoring all the time and then you're making sort of real time adjustments based on those kind of different KPIs there. Mm-hmm. So, which is this, which is just really, really cool. I'm pretty sure yeah. not many uh, coaches or individuals will offer that kind of support, which is absolutely <laughs> class to see. Um Yeah, very, very cool. So in terms of, um, should we just go into the food bit? Because I like talking about food. (laughs) Um, So you mentioned there, palatability um, is huge. So what the research would kind of show is that, yes, you kind of favor this kind of like sweet tasting food, liquids and drinks and stuff to start with. But as like a long sort of race event goes on, your palate does change. to perhaps more uh, savory, salty, perhaps higher fat foods. Did Aaron experience the same um, or did it go a little bit different, different kind of food choices where you kind of think like what's going on here? Um, What was the kind of take home from that?
1: No, he was, um, he was fairly spot on. I have to give him massive credit. Like he was again, fully transparent. I hate this. I'm not having this now. Give me that. But it actually blended with exactly, as you said, the start of it, things are sweet. We're craving sweet foods. And then as the race went on and as it got really, really dark, Um, it was more a case of, I want something savory. So what happened at the start, let's just break it down to like percentage points. So like 25% of the the race had been completed and he had just sweet foods. So it was just between rice, crispy squares, and a mixture of each of them as well, just to change up the flavor, but he still wanted to have the rice, crispy squares with bananas. And there was a, a few sips of tailwind in there as well. So that's what we had at the first 25%. And then once we got past 50%, it was a case of just give me anything. So what we needed to do was just blend it and twist it as the day went on. So to break it down, the first checkpoint was more or less just carbohydrates to that point, all the sweet stuff. And then we started to transition into a little bit more savory. So it was the bagels had been chopped into four pieces and they had tinfoil or they, they had been chopped into four pieces. They had peanut butter on them and they were wrapped in tinfoil. So he was running with his backpack and he was just able to quite simply pick them out and unravel the tinfoil and eat it. So he had bagels with um, the peanut butter on them. Again, that readily available fat source is just going to take a little bit longer to digest. And it's just going to start to kind of, again, match his cravings. And also at that point, it was scorching hot. So we were like, just get some calories in. After the 50% point, then I got a phone call. So, Kieran, can you go pick him up a pizza? He'll have pepperoni and margarita, one half and half. (laughs) (laughs) I said, absolutely no problem. Because that was one thing that I said to him is that as the day goes on, you're going to need to just quite simply get calories in. And at this point, uh, his stomach had kind of become a little bit spasticated at this point as well. So it was a case of, I can't actually get much in. So all of a sudden, if you rock up and say, hey, I have a 14-inch pizza all those cravings just come surging back. And that was an absolute jackpot for me because I was able to say, right, A, you're getting calories in. B, you can now actually get some of this food down. So that's a win-win and we need to worry less about him because everybody knows once fatigue starts to go up and the expenditure of, you know, our fuel burning, if that goes up as well, our heart rate is going to shoot through the roof. And the faster his heart rate goes up through the roof as well, fatigue is going to creep in and then his performance is just going to go straight to shit. And then I'm left standing there with a client that busted his balls the last couple of months and now he can't finish it because they didn't monitor the main things that it should have been. So mm. again, this is where we need to take science just kind of blend it with reality that little bit. So as the day went on, yes, you're 100% right. He started to crave a little bit more savory foods. By the time we got to the last 25%, it was just survival mode. He was craving ham at some points, like just ham. And I said, right, dude, I'm going to give you some ham, but you need to have it in a bagel. He took two bites and he said, this is shit. He just wanted a piece of ham, which God love him. It was just the one thing that he wanted. And I was saying, no, you need to have a bagel with it. So he didn't like me too much at that time. Um, But yes, uh, that became like really challenging as the day went on to keep the sweet spot between the, the physiology and the science and what he wanted. So that was where we just kind of needed to meet in the middle. And it was a little bit tricky, but again, communication is going to rule all. Yeah, that's super
0: cool. I think when it comes to like events like this, um, hitting your total calorie intake or trying to get as close as to your calorie expenditure as possible is going to be the most important thing. Yes, yes. ideally you want to have the majority of carbohydrates to support performance. But you know if we can't get um, or we can't meet our body's demands or your calorie demand for your carbs then it has to come from fat and all these kind of yeah. um, high fat foods. And I guess because his, you know, he's probably been running for like 15, 20 hours at this point, which is insane. <laughs> um, the intensity is going to be quite low. So would, would I be right in saying he's still running in prep zone two, that kind of area? Yeah. So what we actually said we were going to
1: do is like we went very high zone two. Not, again, I can't give the specifics because people can actually measure out what pace and stuff he runs at. But basically we said, right, this is your pace. This is your heart rate you can physically maintain this forever so it was in and around zone two it was actually really high end of zone two and we would just held that forever but then inevitably the heat on the day the sweat rate all of that stuff is going to catch up and inevitably again fatigue is just going to creep in so once we got past 120k performance just started to go down yes it was heavily aerobic no doubt But exhaustion just started to creep in. Like how many people are used to running 16, 17, 18 hours without a rest? So that was where it just started to hit. And again, you know, our body clock is going to kind of take over and go, "Uh, pal, it's time for us to go to sleep here. So it was so funny because once we went an hour past his original sleep time, his body just started to shut down. (laughs) It was really funny to see and to acknowledge, but it was also a case of, right, dude, now you're in the hurt locker. Now I'm going to turn into an absolute dick and i need you to get running right now so it was those kind of things and again it got really really challenging and i kind of felt a little bit bad sometimes but i really didn't like i was showing my love for him as much as possible by getting him over the line
0: so for sure yeah. i guess like once you're that tired and as they say like you know emotion overrides uh logic doesn't it so mm-hmm. when you're like that tired and like you're that emotional it's like you just need someone just like right all the kpis yeah. run point. just get out and start running um, yeah. we got faith in everything here just, just go and do go and implement yeah. so that's, that's awesome that's really cool here and pizza's in uh, ultra marathons that's that's a new <laughs> one that's out, that is outstanding um, was he <laughs> did he actually stop to have the pizza or was he just running and eating pizza
1: he stopped uh, so there was two there's four checkpoints in total and at each checkpoint there was somebody there like a, a race marshal just to tick off that you're still alive and you're still racing and you're still willing to compete because there was a lot of people just started to pull out because, again, sheer exhaustion is an ultimate challenge. So um, at each checkpoint, um, very, very grateful. Again, incredible support crew. Uh, but we had a physio on board as well. And she was just working her magic. So the first thing we did was, right, Aaron, strip down to just your shorts and jump on the weigh scales, right? I was taking note of that. And once we did that, I was chatting with him while he was getting a massage. How are you getting on? How are you feeling? Have you hit a low point yet? Have you hit a high point? How are you feeling with regards to hydration? And another thing as well that we were checking just to link that with hydration is how's the skin looking? Because if sweat rate goes through the roof, we can actually see the salt will actually start to dry on the face. And I know that with him as well, from once the salt starts to dry in on his face, he's kind of touching on dehydration. Um, So those are all the things that we stayed on top of. And yeah, Um, where did he have the pizza? It was the pizza when we stopped at the checkpoint. So it was like, right, sit down, bathe your feet, we don't want blisters coming up, so we had ice and water in a bucket, sit down in the chair, the physio might have been having a chat with him, or putting tape on him or whatever, and then we implemented grounding that little bit so we got rid of the bucket of water, sit there with your bare feet on the floor, in a little patch of grass or on the concrete um, so yeah, recovery strategies came in immediately as well, as everything was going on, it was really really intense actually, which I think I could be here for a few hours trying to explain the whole thing
0: <laughs> That'd to be like clockwork yeah uh, one of the things about say like having pizzas a high salty based food is low to sodium and you know that sweat waste is going can be extremely high and if we're just having water 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 you're mm-hmm. going to get water intoxication and pretty much going to almost like drown yourself through like hyponatremia and stuff so also mm. that is the worst thing that we can potentially uh, ask for to happen yeah um so by having like also you're going to have some sodium in tailwinds, electrolyte drinks, um, sort of energy gels, all that kind of stuff. Mm. But just having, like, more savory foods, just a big dose of, like, sodium in the pizzas. And I yeah. kind of, like, titrate it throughout each kind of stop. So, yeah, that, that is super cool. So, so kind of, like, key wins for you in this uh, race. So, like, what do you feel like went really well? Just kind of, like, blink and What went really well?
1: Um, Teamwork was number one, absolutely 10 out of 10. So again, kudos to every single person. Uh, amazing. Um, From a performance standpoint, Aaron's pacing strategy, just his ability to listen and have 100% trust and faith and go, yes, boom, this is what I'm doing. He did not veer off track at all because the thing, like within the first half to 75%, it's all physical. The last 25% is all mental that's it there's no two ways about that so what he did basically for the first 50 to 75 percent was he just stuck physically regardless of if he felt tired he was able to track his heart rate and to track his pace and he knew that physically i excuse me he knew physically i can maintain this forever so there's no need for me to uh, start laying up right now so what else worked really well was the communication obviously that's huge and vital but the nutrition strategy was fairly on point. And we knew once we started to approach that 50% mark, that's when we were just going to start to transition more to the fatty and savory kind of foods. Because again, calories just needed to get pumped in. So the last 25%, I will put my hand up and admit this. I was actually physically trying to force him to eat food, but we couldn't. Um, glycogen depletion started to kick in. There was a bit of dehydration. And as I said, the last 25% is all mental like your stomach has just been completely pushed to its absolute limit that you've no idea what's going on. And um, yeah, we couldn't get much food into him. So then we started to exhaust all of the possibilities of right. We'll put tailwind into his water bottles and put in a little bit of my wadi to make it taste sweet so that he could possibly get it down. So yeah, you're giving him a, a sweet drink that might taste really good, but we're actually flooding it with some carbohydrates and some caffeine and electrolytes. But he didn't know that at the time. The other one as well was we just went for strict mouth rinsing. Um, there is a positive effect of that. Um, but it was, again, it was a case that like his stomach couldn't physically take in much. So we said, right, we need to get something else. Mouth rinsing with carbohydrates. I said, Aaron, you don't need to swallow it. Just swirl it around your mouth for as long as you can. If you can swallow it, swallow it. If not, spit it out. Um, so we did that with carbohydrate drinks. We did that with magnesium. And we did that with just water as well to try and keep the inside of his uh, mouth salivated as well. Um, so what went really well, the fact that we exhausted absolutely every single scientific principle we could.
0: <laughs> you, you literally got the sports nutrition toolbox and just threw it at him before blast. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that's cool. That's why like working with like endurance and ultra endurance athletes is so fascinating because you can literally like use every single strategy, every single hypothetical. Yeah. It's super cool. And you know like when you kind of get into like that sort of 20th hour or so it's like there's no real research there to suggest like you need to be doing this it's kind of a case of like okay we kind of know what the principles are we kind of know what the hypotheticals are Aaron's running like what is best for him in this scenario and then you know if you think that way and then as you do it a few times you're just going to build that experience and you're going to know exactly kind of what works but for the first time you know I think no, I think he did an absolutely fantastic job there, which is really okay. cool. Um, so things went well. So what about the things that didn't go so well? Was there anything <laughs> that kind of like, almost like, almost split this in two parts, so like what didn't go so well? And then what can you do next time mm. to make it better, to make it run a little bit smoother?
1: Um, yeah, so what didn't go so well was the fact that we couldn't physically prepare to get into the hurt locker too often. And that's what I would say based off everything, because again, yes we could talk about quite simply the ability to stretch his stomach we weren't able to do that as much and to just quite simply like our stomach is just like any normal muscle it needs to be exposed to a sufficient stimulus regularly and often enough in order to bring about a positive adaptation which the positive adaptation that we would have been chasing here is for him to be able to enlarge his stomach to be able to consume more food to get more fuel in and unfortunately, we didn't have too many big events that we could have went for with that because we needed to monitor his training load, needed to make sure that he was able to bounce back and recover, but also not take away from the deadline that was starting to loom, uh, which, is just, which was the 8th of August coming closer and closer. So we needed to be very careful with all of that. So what didn't go so well? I would probably say the fact that we couldn't expose him to too many ultras and at longer than 100k because all we could do with regards to again linking back to the start which is maximum recoverable volume we could only only (laughs) you Mm -hmm. hear me saying only in this case only expose them to 100k run in one day Um, so physically fine able to do that but again we need to stretch the stomach as much as we can and to be able to tolerate that the second thing that I would say what didn't go so well is just we couldn't get too much exposure to the hurt locker and when I'm talking about the hurt locker I mean like this this guy like if you tend to run through a brick wall he's gonna say well you better fucking line up a second one because I'm going through the first one like he's that hard headed and stubborn in the sense of if you challenge me I'm going to go so far past your expectations but the thing is he never got the opportunity to suffer as bad as he did after 125k 125k was breaking point for any man um, but again just like any muscle, if we train it often enough and expose it to a stimulus sufficiently and frequently enough, it's going to adapt. So I'm not going to say that that didn't go so well, but if we could have had an opportunity for more preparation, so more ultras basically, that would have worked well. Um, so the second part of the question is, so next time we approach the event, what will we do differently? Um, increases running volume, quite simply because now we know what he's capable of and we know that we can really, really push it. And psychologically as well, he has that. Um, Get more strength work more often. Um, Quite simply, if the gyms are open, okay? If this whole opportunity is to roll around again, we want to get you into the gym. Some more heavy stuff like heavy deadlifts, A, just aesthetically like feel and look strong. Because again, this guy was a rugby player, big, strong, broad rugby player at over 100 kilos. and Now he's sitting at 84, 85. Well, I think, probably after last week. Um, but as well on top of the rate of force um, development and the rate of force absorption as well. We just want to get those numbers up as high as we can to decrease the likelihood of any structural or mechanical injuries. The last one as well will most definitely be increase the food volume. So basically push this guy's stomach like it's an eating contest. Um, so yeah, that is Those are all the things that I would say.
0: <laughs> Very cool. No, I really like that. Did you, Um, I know it's kind of just like a freak day in, um, in Ireland in it with 27 degrees, um, but did you look at any sort of like cooling strategies or anything like that?
1: Yeah. Um, uh, yes, actually. One thing was really, really cool. Um, I didn't mean any pun by saying that, that it was really cool, <laughs> but um, we, no, started to, <laughs> we started to notice that quite simply fatigue started to accumulate. And when fatigue starts to accumulate, we can physically feel it in a muscle if it gets hot, but then it gets to a point that you're going to feel your central nervous system is quite simply just starting to burst. It's starting to get red hot and it's overheating and it's just like the head gasket in the car. Like if you're going to keep driving it, the car is eventually going to blow and it's just going to stop. So what we noticed was that Aaron basically from the collarbones down, he was physically cool, but the base of his skull and the back of his neck started to get really hot. And the top of his head as well. So like there was steam coming off him, but he felt physically cold. So what we just kind of realized there at that point was, right, we need to actually cool down your central nervous system. So we opened the back of the van, sat him down. And I just said, tip your head forward. We put a face cloth on the back of his head and the back of his neck. And just, I said, stay still. And we just started to pour water on him. So yes, cooling strategies. That is the best thing that we had at the time. In an ideal scenario, it would have been a case of, right, uh, jump out there. We're going to put in the ice bath, and you're going to sit in it for five minutes. But again, it was 3 o'clock in the morning at this stage, and he felt like he was really starting to overheat. So he said, right, we need to cool down your CNS, and we need to make sure that you feel somewhat humid before I force you to run again. So the cooling strategies, that was the best one that we had. The other one as well, when he was changing his socks, I said, take your sweet time changing your socks. And what I got him to do, since the sun had gone down – was just sit at the back of the van with his socks off and keep his feet on the floor. So our heat sensors are actually in the soles of our feet in the palms of our hands. So again, if we can cool that down, it's going to contribute to cooling down the central nervous system a little bit more.
0: Very cool, very cool. I us <laughs> tell you what's a game changer for isotonic <laughs> Slushies. Yes,
1: ah. we were going to, but like we, we, I'm not going to say we experimented with them before. Uh, but I really wanted to go down that route but it was a case of, look, do you know what? Let's not do it now because he was perfectly fine drinking his cold drinks during the day. I said, uh, let's not change up because we didn't get the chance to practice it in training. Because again, we don't have this incredible hot weather too often. But lo and behold, it happened on the day of. So again, maybe that could be something that we look to you know, bring in for next time.
0: That's definitely a curveball that temperature. You might as well have been doing it on like the moon, like it's such a contrast. <laughs> <from normal>. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, that is uh, that's absolutely awesome. So just to kind of wrap up today, um, so say someone um drops you a DM, slides into your DMs, in and instant, like Karen, I want to start doing ultra endurance events. What is like the key bit of advice uh, you would give them?
1: All right. Um if they were to ask me, uh I would tell them bluntly there's three things. Be very strong, like be able to produce force and be able to absorb force. So do not neglect strength training. It's going to keep you upright. It's going to keep you conditioned to, again, producing force and being able to absorb it because there's a thing called GRF, ground reaction force. For every time that we pump our foot into the floor, the floor gives us force back up. And we need to be able to absorb that and tolerate that for hundreds and thousands of steps. So the first thing, get really freaking strong. Second one, train your stomach. If you're going to do something big and stupid like this, Make sure you know what foods you like, what you enjoy, and how can you blend them in to match the scientific principles that are going to help to contribute to improving your performance. Third thing, quite simply take out the guesswork, get a coach. Get somebody that will care for you, somebody that will be honest with you, but somebody that is not going to be any bit shy of pushing you to your physical and mental limits. And that is one thing I will gladly admit that. I take a lot of pride in the fact that, For those 24 hours and 14 minutes, yes, I might have felt internally that I was going to burst into tears, but I was still able to physically and mentally push Aaron to the point, just shy of breaking point, because I knew at the end of the day, that's what he wanted. And that's what a good coach is going to do. They're not going to be your friend. They're going to be somebody that sees you and believes in you having a higher purpose and level of capability. And they're going to push you by all means necessary to get there. So if, you, if somebody were to slide into the DMs, as you said, what advice? I would say get very strong, train your stomach, and take out the guesswork and get a coach that you can trust.
0: Outstanding. That, that's super cool. Very <laughs> concise. is really good. So <laughs> final question to wrap up today. So for an athlete to go from average to elite, what do you feel are the three main qualities they need to have? And this could be any athlete, not just ultra yeah. 100%.
1: Um, have a good, strong, solid look at yourself in the mirror. Uh, when I say that, one thing that I often try and do is when people say, you don't know what it's like to be in my shoes, just stop for a second and try and take yourself out of your shoes, put yourself in the mirror and look back at the person that you are and go, right, what is the actual fucking problem here? Am I being very egotistic? Am I after losing a part of my identity because I don't play sport anymore? Or is it a fact that I'm just not happy with myself, right? So we need to find out where we are currently. Just like I would say to any sports person in any realm, find out what areas you're strong in, but you need to also find out what areas you're weak in. Have a good fucking strong look at yourself in the mirror, okay? If you need to go journaling and write those things out, do it. Be really blunt, be really honest with yourself and confront those harsh realities. So that's the first thing. And um, the other thing that I would say is like in order to get somebody to go from average to elite, do not beat around the bush. If you know that your training is on point, you know that you're making progress, not at the rate that which you would like, there's a pretty good chance it's your nutrition that is letting you down. I'm not going to beat around the bush here. Chris As I'm chatting with you. Like just go straight to Chris and just say, look, dude, I need to get my nutrition on point. Either I'm binging or I'm just missing out on that extra 10%. If you genuinely think you need to get your nutrition on point, just fucking reach out to the pro. Okay. The last thing as well, what I would say is get somebody who has been there. If you want to go from average to elite, how do I get there? Success leaves clues. Look at the people that are in the position that you would love to be in and maybe slide into their DMs, maybe have a chat with them, maybe just ask them for advice. Or, you know, this is something that I've said to a couple of my clients and I say to my friends and stuff as well. It's like, maybe you just need to go fucking see a counselor. Like, and that might sound really stupid, Because like everybody's all rah, rah about the whole performance and aesthetics look. But sometimes maybe we might physically be able to get to that 10 out of 10 standard that could be stupidly elite. But maybe there's just something mentally blocking us and we need to go to a professional in order to untangle that twine, so to speak. Maybe that is something that we might need to do. So what I would say is, again, just to wrap all of that up, is (coughs) have a very good, strong look at yourself in the mirror. Be stupidly honest right? If that is the case, recognize what your strengths and weaknesses are and look to improve upon them. If you need to tighten up your nutrition, don't beat around the bush. Ask Chris, can he help you? And the third one as well is just exhaust all possibilities in the sense of thinking, right? Have I tried it with my own training program? Have I tried it with another coach? Have I tried it with X, Y, and Z method? Well, maybe I just need to go see a professional that's going to be able to rectify my identity and help me to get what I'm truly feeling I should deserve. Because again, that's why we get coaches. That's why we get mentors. We go to a trusted, guided professional so that they can help us to get from average to elite in every physical, mental, or emotional aspect.
0: Outstanding. So nothing is left on the table. And that's something that absolutely destroys me when I see someone very, very talented and they're doing 50% of the work. Yeah. So that's, that's what breaks me. Uh, and then you see... The perhaps more uh, or the individuals that further down the uh, food chain doing everything to get to the elite, but they just don't have the skill or what have you. So yeah, yeah, I completely agree with all that. That's fantastic. And thank you for plugging me once again (laughs) (laughs) on my own podcast. Nice. So, um, no, that was absolutely fantastic. I personally learned a lot, and that was my whole selfish uh, reason for having the podcast today, so I can learn. Uh, from your experiences and I definitely have. I've got a page of notes in front of me, which is fantastic and conveniently enough, I now have a recording of it. So, awesome. So, again, big thank you uh, for people who want to reach out, uh, follow you on social media, get to know you better, get to know Kieran, the Strength Catalyst. Where can they find you?
1: Uh, Yeah, cheers, dude. Um, So, on Instagram, it's at Strength Catalyst. If you want to look me up on Facebook, just type in Kieran O'Byrne um, or my website is the strengthcatalyst.com. Quite simply, if I could give anybody any bit of a message right now, is if you're struggling with any area, know that there is a possibility for you to go a little bit higher. Do not be scared to ask for help. And I'm not saying that to try and tell people, oh, hey, come to me and sign up with me. Not at all. If there is a coach out there that you do truly think can help you, do not be scared to ask them for help because if they are true, to themselves in their job. They will try and exhaust any possibility to help you. If they're just in it for the money and if they just want you to sign up to make a quick buck, then you're going to smell them a mile off. So what I would say is reach out, ask for help. I'm more than happy to send you back a voice note or if I can, I'll reference you to somebody else that
0: can help you. Awesome. Superb. <coughs> Mr. Ciarán thank you very much and <laughs> goodbye. Dude, thank you.